We are used to hearing about scaremongering in the media about military-grade weapons. The Javelin anti-tank system is a military-grade weapon. It doesn't just lock onto tanks, it will lock onto a motorcycle or a, or a bus, anything made out of metal. It can be operated by anyone who can operate a PlayStation. When we reflect upon, shall we say, medicine or the law or the police or even the army, what I would suggest you do is try and remind yourself that this is not the 1990s anymore. The World Economic Forum concluded their annual meeting at Davos last week. And as promised, I brought back LifeSite's contributor, Frank Wright, who gave us such an amazing primer on the forum last week. But let's have a little peek inside this gathering of world elites stomping for population control, biometric surveillance, and uh, basically a type of world domination that the tyrants of yesterday couldn't even have dreamed of. Did you know that the Vatican under Pope Francis has had a close, although little known relationship with the World Economic Forum? Pope Francis has signaled his intimacy with the World Economic Forum's globalist founder, Klaus Schwab, by sending an address to the World Economic Forum four times. And he's also allowed an annual Vatican roundtable at the Davos World Economic Forum conference site. Good bishops, though, have been on the other side. Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, called out the World Economic Forum for its godless agenda and for its failure to respect man's God-given rights. He said in a recent tweet, and I quote, who elected the World Economic Forum? Their agenda is godless and does not respect our God-given rights as human beings. Elected officials who bow to them are betraying the very people who elected them. We need to return to natural law, which guides us in truth." End quote. So the World Economic Forum has been pushing for a new world order and listening to the people that are influential with them gives us a fairly good idea of what their new world order would look like. Yuval Noah Harari, for instance, the top advisor to the World Economic Forum, declared that humans are now hackable and we must get used to it. Have a listen. Now in the past, Many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough. And nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. We humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals. In the coming decades, AI and biotechnology will give us godlike abilities to re-engineer life and even to create completely new life forms. Harari in the past has declared that the whole world does not need the vast majority of its current population especially in light of technological advancements. But he isn't the only one pushing for a global depopulation. Here, listen to Jane Goodall, casually pushing this same agenda at the World Economic Forum. We cannot hide away from human population growth because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. 
Hello, LifeSite friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Each round is stamped on the back with an image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, we feature LifeSite's logo, surrounded by brilliant sunbursts and draped with olive branches, and each round commemorates LifeSite's 25 years of pro-life, pro-family reporting in America, Canada, and beyond. These one troy ounce rounds are 0.999 pure silver, and LifeSite has just under 10,000 in stock. They're beautiful, historic, and forever enshrining the most important American pro-life victory of a generation. This first edition LifeSite Silver Round is the perfect gift for yourself or anyone you love that collects precious metals and is passionately pro-life. And each purchase helps directly fund LifeSite's pro-life and pro-family mission. This is the first precious metals collectible of its kind that is directly supporting LifeSite's worldwide mission that you know, love, and trust. And now it can be yours while limited supplies last. Get your one troy ounce rounds of 99% pure silver today by clicking the first link below and celebrate life with all of us at LifeSite News. So last week, Frank Wright told us about the prostitutes flocking to Davos, Switzerland and its surrounding areas, driven by the sex demand that the World Economic Forum um, go, that go along, goes along with it. So many of the world's most powerful men are there. And I guess that's what is uh, wanted. Well, it should be of no surprise that despite all of the woke feminist dialogue, the World Economic Forum, and those that flock to it care little about women and their actual dignity. The World Economic Forum was founded in 1971 in Geneva, and we at LifeSite have reported extensively about it. As Frank wrote in his article on LifeSite, and I quote, For a forum nominally devoted to the World Economic Forum, it has provided little insight this year into solutions to a mounting economic crisis in Europe. It has furnished us with its own vision of a post-human future, which is happily experiencing technical difficulties due to the hyper-polarized, hyper-partisan time in which we now live. The forum appears to be largely a platform for politicians and other state-level performers to showcase themselves. We heard India's Minister for Women and Child Development, Simitri Irani, proudly proclaim its promotion of abortion on Tuesday last week during a panel discussion titled Gender Parity for Economic Recovery. Have a listen. He is the first prime minister in India who passed in both houses of parliament medical termination of pregnancy at 24 weeks for women without a whimper or a noise from any other man in Indian politics. Naturally, the panelists never talked about women being happy or fulfilled. Rather, the focus was solely on women entering the workforce and increasing the number of women in management positions. We have to use more women in the labor market, economist Ilan Goldfein said. Of course, it is beneficial for big corporations to advocate for contraception and abortion so women stay in the workforce and keep paying taxes to the government instead of being able to have children and raise them at home. Join me as I interview Frank Wright, 
for a post-mortem on the World Economic Forum 2023. And if you haven't watched my first show with Frank, be sure to check it out. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Frank Wright, thanks for coming back on the program. Hello again, John. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you for having me on the show. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Tell us your perspective now that World Economic Forum has come to a close. What's your takeaway? The first thing to say about the World Economic Forum is that it is happily diminishing in its influence. This is indicated by the fact that very few of the world's foremost leaders actually attended it this year. There may be a reason for that that is uh, connected to the second reason, uh, the second serious issue about the World Economic Forum. For a forum that's devoted nominally to economics, to world economics, there's very little mention of any economic news whatsoever. I mean, this is noteworthy in itself. The fact that the World Economic Forum does not talk about the worst economic crisis facing Europe since World War II is a startling omission that can only be a, a deliberate act. It's difficult to understand how otherwise an economic forum would ignore the global realignment in economic supply chains that is, has been a consequence of the West's intervention in the war in Ukraine, which has seen countries like Saudi Arabia, in a formerly unthinkable move, peel away from the influence of the West and forge new partnerships with the Russians and the Chinese. This is also happening to Qatar, who has enormous gas resources. The strategic implications of this having an economic dimension, you would imagine would be at the top of the agenda in a World Economic Forum. There are further problems that have taken place in Europe as a result of the war, as a result of the policies of the kind of people who did not attend Davos, such as the destruction, the mysterious destruction of the Nord Stream 2 pipelines. These pipelines were constructed by two cons consecutive German chancellors, which was Gerhard Schröder and Angela Merkel. Schroeder ma uh, maintains a position uh, on the board of the Nord Stream Company to this day. They cooperated with the Russians to build these pipelines in order to service 40% of German gas needs to provide a predictable and sustainable and cheap source of energy to maintain the industrial base that pays effectively for the rest of Europe. There is no longer going to be an industrial base in Germany, say major heads of German industry. They announced as early as last year, September, was the main announcement that they made when BASF said that it was relocating much of its manufacturing to China. It was doing so because it could not guarantee energy security and stability. It couldn't pay the price of the variable spot market LNG on which Europe is said to rely in the future. And this has replaced um, pipeline gas from Russia, which was purchased upon 10 to 15 year contracts at a predictable rate. Industry simply cannot function on a spot price supply of gas. You would imagine that such an issue would exist, again, would be economic news to a world economic forum. But the deindustrialization of the major manufacturing base, the heartland of the European economy, simply isn't news. What also isn't news is the fact that there is a second pipeline complex which takes gas from Russia through the Black Sea and into Turkey. This is called Turkstream and it's existed for several years now in an operational capacity, but is currently undergoing major redevelopment. 
in order to supply Central Europe and the Balkans with a reliable gas supply. There has been, according to Russian and Turkish sources, at least one attempt to sabotage this pipeline as well, which was thwarted. However, it does remain a strategically important development because now that Germany can no longer rely upon its own gas supplies, this places much geostrategic influence in the hands of the Turks. This too should be economic news for a foreign based in Europe, but it is not. This issue touches upon the retreat of US power, the grand diminution of US influence in the Middle East writ large. Not only have they lost the Saudis, which again would have been unthinkable even several years ago, to speak of that relationship being fractured to the point where they wouldn't pick up the phone to the President of the United States would have been deemed absurd, and yet that's just what happened. The Saudis in the past have routinely observed American requests to time their changes in oil supply, which affect the world market in oil and therefore the productivity and profitability of world industry. They have always agreed to time these changes to the whims of the US election cycle, depending upon the incumbent, and this time they did not. And they ignored US requests, and they went ahead with an independent policy which is now guided by supplying a, a block that is backed by Russia and China, known as BRICS, which is composed, it's, a, it's an acronym, composed of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, to which you can add Indonesia and Saudi Arabia itself now. now one of the reasons why Turkey has become more strategically important is because, again, from an issue that does not touch upon an economic forum, it holds the key to Syrian migration movements. Millions of Syrians could be flooded into Europe on the whim of Erdogan, the president of Turkey. He knows this and uses it as leverage. NATO needs his votes to allow for the accession of Sweden and for Finland, an issue which is not without tensions itself. However, in a, in a remarkable development of the last six weeks, the Turks have made moves towards a rapprochement with the Syrian government. The Turks initially attacked Syria uh, when the civil war began, believing, as Erdogan was given assurances, he claims, by Obama that the Americans would intervene and support his campaign which he instigated by supporting the rebels in Syria. Despite the fact that he's therefore the sworn enemy of Assad, they are mooted to be meeting very soon in order to discuss a peace deal that will effectively isolate the US, its tiny military presence there, and its only remaining ally in the region being the Kurds. And the diplomatic chatter is that the Turks and the Syrians are willing to come together to see the Kurds as a common enemy. That's to say that the United States' only remaining ally in the region is going to be seen as the common enemy between Syria and a nominal NATO member in Turkey. This peace agreement is, of course, being backed by the Russians. This is a major diplomatic change, one that does have impact on geostrategic and geoeconomic issues. And again, it's one that gets no mention in a forum nominally devoted to how the world is best managed for prosperity. The signs are of increasing instability, and the World Economic Forum itself cited these signs of global polarization and instability as one reason why it cannot more rapidly move its own agenda forward. This should be encouraging news to anyone who identifies as a member of the reality-based community. So a tremendous relief for us all, I would say, that Klaus Schwab's project appears to have somewhat hit the buffers of late.
The fact that it is diminished is demonstrated by the absence of major world leaders, such as the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, the British, many world leaders. More world leaders stayed away than attended. The ones that did, uh, as Klaus likes to call them, his favoured stakeholders. The favoured stakeholders that did appear were largely people who wished to garner attention for themselves or to showcase themselves in order perhaps to shore up their own credibility or to advance their own pet projects. Any situation in which you find yourself relying on a presence, um, an appearance made by Tony Blair must be a desperate one. Tony Blair did appear to speak in favour of the creation of uh, what would effectively be a global surveillance state that removes your right to refuse medical treatment and incarceration which is uh, to be taken under the forthcoming World Health Organization conference in May. Tony Blair, of course, is fully in favor of this. But what Tony Blair overlooks in his messianic zeal to promote his own imaginings is that Tony Blair is, isn't a good advertisement. He's not a good advertisement for the World Health Organization. He's not a good advertisement for the World Economic Forum. And if you look at him, he's not even a good advertisement for himself. So any organization that resorts to putting him on screen is a desperate one. Secondly, Tony Blair is not the only desperate managerialist who is looking for more credibility by showcasing themselves and the World Economic Forum. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who is currently presiding over, as I said before, the worst economic crisis in Europe since the end of World War II, was careful to appear in photo opportunities with President Zelensky of Ukraine's wife, Mrs. Zelensky gave a very emotional address to the World Economic Forum in the first couple of days, which centered on um, an appeal about children. She was effectively trying to drum up support for the escalation of the war in Ukraine at a time at which European nations disagreed about exporting modern tanks in order to reinforce the Ukrainian war effort in an attempt to shame the Germans to abandon their policy of de-escalation, which they have subsequently done. Mrs. Zelensky invoked the example of children being separated from the sacred bond that they have with their motherland uh, in an act of what she described as effective genocide by the Russians. Uh, it has been described elsewhere as an effective genocide of the Russians. She's referring to a program in which several thousand war orphans have been adopted by Russian families. These are overwhelmingly likely to be Russian-speaking children with Russian heritage. They, they are very much likely to fit, much, to fit in well with their future homes. This has been framed as a war crime, and it is doubly ironic that it should come from a person whose husband presides over the world's greatest supermarket for the sale of children. Uh, fortunately for those children, future and present, this business has been suspended by the outbreak of war, before which Ukraine has been described by major Western publications as the number one destination for surrogacy, which means Anyone with the money can buy a baby, a newborn baby, from a woman who will never see that baby again. They can buy frozen embryos for their own reason. And some of the companies that are involved in this in Britain and in the United States furnish single homosexual men with babies. Uh, the LGBTQ community are welcomed into this. They will sell babies to people from every background and be proud of it. In fact, one such agency is is promoted by Britain's most famous gay dad, as he styles himself. This is the kind of business in which uh, Ukraine was happy to enrich itself before the war broke out. It is, it is simply one example 
of the kind of dubious activities for which it was notorious mere months before the outbreak of the war, with the publishing of the Pandora Papers in 2021 by publications such as The Guardian in the United Kingdom, Ukraine was noted to be the destination for the ill-gotten funds of up to 230 former world leaders uh, and members and heads of state. This, this placed it at the top of the list of the most corrupt countries in the world. It was corruption that has continued, even to this week, when Zelensky himself fired his finance minister, uh, of, sorry, his finance minister for community reconstruction, was, I think, imprisoned on Sunday evening and will face charges with embezzlement. Together with which, Ukraine is not doing well. Plan for Ukraine is not doing well. The reason for this emotive appearance at the World Economic Forum is the, is the fact that the Ukraine is not doing well in the war. And this means that the Western plan has also been somewhat derailed. This is the reason for the attention grabbing by Ursula von der Leyen. This is the reason for a, a renewed attempt to sell the war effort, because so far it has not worked. When the Ukraine is begging for tanks, uh, its, head of, its head, its chief of staff, the chief of defence staff of Ukraine, General Zaluzhny, made an appeal that was in The Economist, and uh, in The Economist or Newsweek. The chief of general staff, General Zaluzhny of Ukraine, made an appeal that was reported in either The Economist or Newsweek, requesting 300 to 400 main battle tanks, without which, he said, his army would be incapable of mounting any meaningful offensive. Whether or not he receives tanks in such number, it is arguable whether Ukraine can prevail at all. In a remarkable development, the chief of communications for Zelensky, a man called Alexei Arostovich, has very recently departed the government. He was requested to leave following a controversy over the bombing of an apartment block in Dnipro, which he announced was due to Ukrainian and not Russian activity, as had been previously broadcast in the West. Following this, he was forced out of his position, which was the effective head of propaganda for Ukraine. Aristovich has gone on to give interviews in which he suggested that Ukrainian victory is increasingly unlikely, and wherewith he also suggests that the survival of the Ukrainian state itself is in question. These are remarks that echo the remarks of some members of the Polish government as well, which have been renewed in recent days. The Poles have a suspicious interest in, the, in what's now called Lvov, and this region was formerly known as Western Galicia when it was administered and ruled by the Poles. The Poles appear to be manoeuvring for their own post-partition interest in a fissiparous Ukraine. It seems that the plan for them may very well be not to take these tanks that they're offering to Ukraine to the east, but instead to keep them to pacify and control a region that they consider historically their own. This is speculative. But may be the case, because if the chief of propaganda for the Ukraine is coming out and saying that the war is unlikely to be won and that Ukraine itself may dissolve, then we can only imagine what people are saying in private in the nations which border this post-Soviet border dispute. Meanwhile, President Zelensky himself did manage to address the World Economic Forum. Uh, and again, in a spectacular address, which was nominally to introduce a, a peace plan. The peace plan that he had introduced was, in fact, an appeal for the escalation of the war. According to President Zelensky, the way to secure peace is to flood Ukraine with the inventories of every Western nation 
which has yet to empty its own arsenal into Ukraine in order to secure a military victory. It is unlikely that such a victory would take place even were these nations to do this for technical reasons, which may be obvious to anyone who's ever had to fix a car in the countryside. Some of these tanks weigh dozens of tons. They all have differing armaments. They have differing electronic systems which power them. They need different supply chains in order to maintain them in the battlefield. They are difficult to keep operational. People may remember the idea of the ratio of tooth to tail in an army. Now, the ratio of tooth to tail with armor would be at least five to one. So for every tank and every crew that you have, you can multiply that by five for the supply chain that has to go back for parts and for maintenance and for logistics. To build a supply chain for a company of tanks is a difficult exercise. To build a supply chain for 14 tanks, like Britain is sending 14 Challenger 2s, would be almost impossible to achieve. It's notable as well that in today's offer of Abrams tanks, over which the Germans hesitated to give their approval to the sending of Le Leopard 2 tanks from neighbouring European states to which they've sold them, that the United States is not promising tanks that exist now, but it's promising to manufacture them. This may take two years. It may not ever happen. It is a paper promise, which has no guarantee of ever materialising, and it is a means of leveraging the Germans into giving their assent to the export of modern tanks, which they had resisted until today, because they wished not to, es to escalate hostilities with their Russian neighbours, upon whom they've relied for many years to supply their economy with cheap and reliable energy. I think the Germans rightly feared that, but I think they've been pressured into saying yes. One of the issues that the World Economic Forum has failed to touch upon is its own decline in influence. Its own decline of influence is undermined. Uh, the, the fact that the World Economic Forum has been undermined by the actions of its own stakeholders is perhaps an embarrassment to this organisation. In a remarkable document named The Outlook for BlackRock, a recent publication noted BlackRock's own hand in economic policies which are accelerating the instability of Western economies and societies. This is a remarkable admission from the world's most powerful investment firm, which owns trillions in assets and who was helpfully exculpated by a recent fact-finding and debunking mission by the British news agency Reuters. Reuters was faced with the claim that BlackRock owned many single-occupancy US family homes and refuted this claim. They said that BlackRock does not, in fact, own these homes and isn't the major landowner. Further investigation reveals that BlackRock is in fact a subsidiary of an earlier company called Blackstone. The difference between a stone and a rock appears to be a technicality upon which Reuters champions itself uh, as the brave and bold investigators of the Fourth Estate. Blackstone is in fact America's landlord, as it's described in places like the Wall Street Journal, owning more real estate globally, as they say, than any other firm on earth. The question of it being a subsidiary is surely a technicality. BlackRock, therefore, have vast influence in the world. How have they been using this influence? They've been using this influence by their own admission in a destabilizing manner, by forcing companies, massive companies, to advance a net zero agenda, which they know will make them unstable and incapable of maintaining their own industrial base. 
This will also deprive them of the cheap and reliable energy sources that they need to predict five to ten years of operations, causing what might be called a further exodus to China. BlackRock itself has decided to enter the Chinese market, and a person no less than George Soros has denounced this as a danger to national security in the United States. When George Soros is calling your organization a danger to the nation, it may be time to sit up and listen. Nonetheless, BlackRock is apparently going ahead with attempts to integrate its own business model with that of the Chinese. BlackRock has also promoted policies which lead to social dissolution. They are aggressive champions of the idea of equity in corporations, meaning that for those companies in which they hold a, an influence or over whom they hold an influence, they routinely and inexorably promote a policy wherewith people are given power, influence, internships, and advancement for reasons other than competence. In fact, for almost any other reason than competence. The issue with the equity-based selection system that permeates most of our public administration and large-scale institutions, whether private or public, is that it deliberately selects against talent for superficial qualities such as lifestyle and appearance. This is a recipe for destabilization, which BlackRock admits in its own documentation. The only answer for this, why are they doing it, which is to be found at the end of the article which revealed this project to me, why would BlackRock pursue these policies? I think the answer is to be found in the nature of large-scale bureaucracies. Technocratic large-scale bureaucracies, that's to say, when managerialism meets technology and is combined for maximum efficiency and effect, these organizations, which may have been initially created to be simply more efficient and to better manage our lives, eventually develop a form of self-defense, which they may describe as customer service, to preserve themselves from the feedback of the ordinary person. They would see you and I rather like a, a disease requiring an antibody reaction to be isolated and neutralized. There is no public feedback at this level because these organizations have evolved to the point where their only directive is self-preservation. And that self-preservation includes, as it does with BlackRock, seemingly the destruction of everything else in order to preserve its own hegemony. This is the spirit, if you like, of modern technocratic bureaucracies the world over, whether it's the people that hand out your driving license, the people that manage your army or your health care, the people that look after your pension funds, or the people that take over nations' agricultural land and real estate development, such as BlackRock, the people that have heavily usurized debt leverage systems to impoverish entire nations, such as BlackRock, are also advancing policies that don't just destroy your economy and remove your ability to own your own property or to pursue your own way of life, but they also actively promote policies that are designed to degrade the quality of the very institutions that should be there to stop them doing this in the first place. This is the kind of insidious, large-scale project uh, of which the World Economic Forum has itself been accused in the past. BlackRock has admitted to this, and of course, it is a major partner or preferred stakeholder in the World Economic Forum. President Zelensky went on to congratulate BlackRock, uh, along with JP Morgan, in an address that he gave following the World Economic Forum by video to a business delegation in Boca Raton. He said that it was a wonderful opportunity that was presented by Ukraine to the defense industry to make money in, in his own country. 
to offer them the opportunity of rebuilding Ukraine, not only in defence spending, he said, but also in every other area of business, from communications to health to public administration. This is a very much an extension of the ideas brought forward by Arsenyi Yatsenyuk, who in the first post-coup government was appointed by Victoria Newland in a now notorious telephone call to the then Ambassador Pyatt, the American Ambassador Pyatt. Yatsenyuk was named by Victoria Newland in that call as the preferred Prime Minister of the future government, and lo and behold, he became that the following month. What did he do that made him so noteworthy? What he did then was he implemented a series of, of stringent, punishing neoliberal economic reforms which effectively asset strip any nation and hand the capital of that nation and the livelihoods of that nation through diminished living standards and wage expectations to large-scale corporations. This is the reason, partly the reason, why the coup was instituted in the first place, because the then-president had arranged initially a loan on neoliberal terms with European investors, backed by the European Union. Consequent to this, he was then offered a better deal by the Russians. The Russians offered to overmatch the money, but to charge him no interest for it, and to not attach any neoliberal reforms to the conditions of this loan. Several months after this deal, he was ousted in what was televised to the world as an outpouring of democratic fervour. Victoria Newland was seen in the centre of Kiev handing out cookies at the time, as we may remember. The United States, of course, has form in this, in this area as early as 2003, when we still had a functioning media, publications such as The Guardian openly admitted that the United States was behind the colour revolution in Ukraine at the time. That was called the Orange Revolution. It also detailed that the Rose Revolution in Georgia was similarly the product of CIA action, as well as that of NGOs backed by the United States. And, of course, some of the favoured stakeholders of the World Economic Forum feature in that list. The issue of the self-determination of the people of Ukraine has never really been the case for war. The case for war in Ukraine is adumbrated by the poison of hatred. I am not a supporter of the Russian government, and if you wish to understand why, there's a very good substack written by a, a Russian called Edward Slavsquat, which is a curious name, which takes on the trope of squatting Slavs, or Russians who like to squat in the street and sit down in this particularly distinctive manner. What Edward Slavsquat does is he details the way in which the Russians too have implemented the kind of technocratic global health managerialism which we associate with the worst excesses of the COVID regime. Russia is not a paradise. I am not a traitor. I love my country. And in order to preserve it from the plunder of a death cult, which has destroyed many nations around the world and replaced their order with chaos, which has mobilized by the exploitation of the noblest motives towards the basest ends, millions of people around the world in support of these disastrous neoconservative adventures, I wish to preserve my own nation and yours from further exploitation by these cynical top-level managerialists who have unfortunately directed what has become a neoconservative war faction in the West. It is now impoverishing much of Western Europe, perhaps permanently, in a stagflation cycle that sees potentially no end in sight since it has lost access to the, to the freely available, stable and cheap resources which provided for its industrial basis. BlackRock's document gives the lie to the idea 
that they are innocent of all these of all the foregoing charges when they mention what they call the great moderation blackrock details something called the great moderation which is the expectation of rising economic prosperity that was instituted under reagan and thatcher so for roughly 40 years the west generally speaking has enjoyed a period of prosperity of gently managed upward prosperity which has fueled aspirations and has underwritten an idea of the West as somewhere where we can expect a better future for our children than the world we currently enjoy. The outlook of BlackRock begins with a bewailing of the fact that this great moderation, this period of prosperity, managed prosperity, has now come to an end. It then goes on to expound the many ways in which it has come to an end, whilst admitting that it was its own measures which have done so its own destabilizing measures in aggressively pushing towards a net zero green future, which is effectively deindustrializing the basis that provides for this prosperity, whilst pushing policies within the workplace that promote incompetent people who simply cannot manage the complex bureaucracies upon whom we used to rely. A further function of our technocratic society, therefore, is that much of it is now vestigial. What a vestige is, is it's a cherished, durable memory of how something used to be when we look at things in our minds when we reflect upon shall we say medicine or the law or the police or even the army what i would suggest you do is try and remind yourself that this is not the 1990s anymore these institutions no longer function in the way to which you have become accustomed throughout your life if you are fortunate to have lived through a time of superior efficiency when people were selected for preferment on the basis of competence far more commonly than for any other reason. You will know what I'm talking about. These institutions which are supposed to manage our lives are themselves in decline as a result of precisely the kind of policies that BlackRock has aggressively promoted by leveraging its debt-fueled influence around the world. The decline of the West is not an overstatement. The decline of the West is a reality diplomatically in the Middle East in, in the border states around Russia and elsewhere, economically, it is irreversible without a return to what the director of the uh, International Energy Agency, Fatih Barol, said, the irreplaceability of six million barrels of Russian sweet crude oil. Fatih Barol did actually appear at the World Economic Forum, and one would imagine that he would have something to say about the statements which he made in the middle of 2022, saying that there would be no replacement not only for Russian oil, but for Russian gas in a warning issued to the European leaders who were about to sanction these supplies. They hadn't yet sanctioned them. They went on to do so, uh, eventually completing nine rounds of sanctions with the aim of undermining Russia's economy, isolating it internationally, destabilizing the country, causing regime change, and therefore producing the dream outcome of a Putin-free Russia that can, that can be used as a client state. Plentiful resources can then be exploited at will. None of this has materialized, but the energy crisis predicted by the head of the International Energy Agency has materialized. It was predictable then, and what is worse, his own agency has predicted that this year will see it deteriorate even further, with next winter showing even more shortages. This is because of the simple reason that the infrastructure does not exist in Europe to replace cheap Russian pipeline gas with a parallel structure of liquid natural gas or LNG. It needs a different storage facility. It needs, it needs dockyard facilities 
for it to be offloaded from ships. It arrives by sea. It is not sold by contract, so its price is not stable and predictable over 10 years. It's sold in the spot market. Its price may change and does while it is in transit. German industry itself, including leaders of companies such as Bosch and Siemens and Mercedes, have said that they cannot operate their industries in Germany upon the basis of an unpredictable energy supply that may or may not be available in sufficient quantity. And if it is, its price simply cannot be predicted with any accuracy. No one can do business under these circumstances. The knock-on effect of simply the oil and gas sanctions has been to accelerate the deindustrialization of Europe beyond the ability of Europe to maintain stability and indeed to preserve its own way of life. What is at stake for the West in Ukraine, therefore, is not just the public image of the neoconservative faction for which this is just another failed foreign adventure. It is the rising credibility gap between what we are told and what is actually happening in the real world. When people find out, as they will, that this has been a debacle for which they have paid with their livelihoods, if the escalation does take place, may even pay with their lives, people will be outraged to learn under the, the false pretenses under which this conflict was undertaken, mainly inspired by a RAND Corporation assessment of 2019, which I would say optimistically described Russia as a precarious state that was peculiarly fragile and amenable to sanctions in order to create instability, chaos and collapse. Regime change in Russia was the idea. It was inspired by this paper. It has been mentioned several times. And as recently as last week, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham mentioned that Putin must face trial in The Hague. This is a notable addition as well. It's not a new addition, but it's a notable addition to the plan for Russia of the West and the neoconservatives because it involves an element of humiliation. The idea is not to find justice for Putin, it is to humiliate him. It is to further humiliate Russia and to threaten him with the kind of humiliation that was suffered by Saddam Hussein and by Colonel Gaddafi. The in inclusion of an element of humiliation added to the element of dehumanization should make anyone morally suspect of any conflict. It's my personal opinion that the addition of hatred into any conflict does not indemnify the conflict, rather, for the reverse, it should make you suspicious of its motivations. Where killing is necessary, and sometimes killing is necessary, then there should be no element of hatred. There is no need for any element of hatred whatsoever. Furthermore, I believe it would make you less effective in combat. In single combat, hatred tends to distract you. Uh, in general military engagement, it poisons the mind beyond strategic thinking. There is no real place for this kind of emotion in uh, a genuine conflict. If the conflict is genuine and just, there's no reason to promote it. Dehumanizing the enemy and wishing to humiliate them are suspicious base motives, which should make us question what is going on in the first place. This is not to say that the Russians are innocent. The Russians are not innocent. No one is innocent. However, to dehumanize people is itself hardly a sign of innocence. And to attempt to whip up hatred upon the basis of this dehumanization is wickedness. What is at stake here is the cheap resources of the Russians without Putin. This was the goal of the neoconservative war planners. That's what they wanted. The economic sanctions have demonstrably backfired in a way that would mean tremendous loss of face for the West. However, 
they are more concerned with that loss of face than they are with you losing your life. The loss of our livelihoods, the loss of our industry, the loss of a better world for our children. These feature not at all in the calculations of the neoconservative death cult, which has never been habituated to facing the consequences of their own actions. It is to be remembered that none of these wars have been won. And in every single case, the enemy has been left in a better strategic position. Not only has the United States lost all its recent wars, it has left the enemy better armed and with stronger allies and with a far broader regional influence. To consider the example of Iran, for example, whose aegis now extends far beyond its own formerly isolated nation, well into places such as Yemen and even is reputed to have some actors in Libya. Libya was formerly one of the most successful nations in Africa, if not the most successful nation, whose leader, Gaddafi, controversially wished to move off the euro and dollar system, issuing his own Libyan oil-backed gold diner to, and I quote, wean Africa from ruinous debt slavery. Following this, of course, it was decided that he had to go. Uh, a coincidence, I'm sure which will be entertained uh, uh, by people outside the reality-based community. As a member of the reality-based community, uh, I identify as sane. Uh, I would argue that Colonel Gaddafi's fate is not only uh, indicative of the motives behind neoconservative adventurism, which are technocratic managerial profiteering, but also they indicate the moral nihilism of the people behind these uh, actions. They don't care the degree to which they cause destruction and death, they do not care about the echoing earthquake actions, the earth-shattering consequences of their destabilization of entire regions. What matters to them is their own factional power and the perpetuation of their own peculiar ideology, which effectively reduces to the idea that war is an instrument of civilization and that countries can be turned into Sweden by being bombed. The difficulty with taking such people seriously should be judged in the World Economic Forum on the basis of their record, but it is not. These wars have been tremendously expensive, not just in human life, but have effectively turned into a bottomless pit for trillions of dollars that will never, ever be seen again. Where the money goes is not uh, explained anywhere in our glorious fourth estate. Once CBS News stepped out of line, and broadcast a documentary that detailed the fact that 60% of the armament sent to Ukraine had disappeared, that there was no way of knowing into whose hands they'd been delivered, and an interview with an arms dealer who was tasked with distributing these arms said that this was routine. It wasn't extraordinary, that it was a usual figure of around 30% of arms that ever reached the destination. What the take-home there is for the general public is that where these conflicts occur and large-scale arms sales occur as a result, the overwhelming majority of these arms will not be going to the legitimate combatants. They will be going to the black market. It is my belief, unfortunate as it is, that we will see an escalation in the scale and effectiveness of terrorist activity in Europe following its flooding with an enormous number of high-grade military weapons. We are used to hearing about scaremongering in the media about military-grade weapons. The Javelin anti-tank system is a military-grade weapon. It doesn't just lock onto tanks. It will lock onto a motorcycle or a, or a bus, anything made out of metal. It can be operated by anyone who can operate a PlayStation. The Javelin anti-tank missile is just one example of 
extremely heavy weapons, which have been videoed and recorded as being sold to criminals under shady circumstances. This, too, is unreported. This is not just an, uh, a black market of enormous value, which should feature at the World Economic Forum, but obviously a force for destabilization, danger and chaos. Not every crisis that we experience in our society of crisis management is a confection of the technocratic managerialists. One tragedy of our age is that our experience is so saturated in manufactured crisis and panic that it is confusing, if not impossible, to tell the real crisis from the manufactured crisis. There are real crises abroad, ones which deserve our immediate attention. One such crisis is this, of the, of the, the notoriously inefficient and corrupt sale of arms in Ukraine. Where have these arms gone? Into whose hands have they been delivered? Frankly, if you have the money, you could have bought them. This includes missiles that can shoot down aircraft, such as Stinger missiles, known as MANPATs, shoulder-launched ordnance that can take down an airliner at low altitude. You can certainly shoot down any helicopter. The idea that this is going to result in a more stable, free, democratic Europe is insane. The people who do these things know this beforehand. This is not an unpredictable outcome. This is a predictable outcome, such as the outcome on European industry. It can only be argued, therefore, that the managers in control of this war faction have factored this in and consider it irrelevant. This is the same kind of indifference to the democratic process and to the wishes and welfare of the general public, as is demonstrated by large-scale corporations such as BlackRock itself, in its assessments, it never mentions the fact that many people across the world will be vehemently opposed to the acceleration of net zero policies. It doesn't mention them because they're powerless and irrelevant. In BlackRock's eyes, they are simply an inconvenience not worth mentioning. That is because the democratic process is careful to exclude people who have genuine political conviction, and so therefore routinely publishes manifestos that pop up like red and blue balloons in an election cycle, only to disappear from sight, like a helium balloon released from a child's hand, like a firework in the night. They burn bright for a moment, and then they are gone. And when the dawn comes, business as usual takes place once again. Our system of politics is very much like that of a large-scale bureaucratic organisation, in as much as it selects against principle, it selects against persons of character and ability, and it strongly selects for components rather than character. It selects for parts of a machine. Can you make the machine function well? Will you interrupt the functioning of the machine? When you consider the mediocrities that are put forward as our world leaders today, when you consider the Ardens and the Trudeaus and the Bidens and the Sunaks, and you see that these people are in fact world leaders, it's difficult not to disbelieve in them, or to disbelieve in the very reality that puts them before you. That is, the reason they are there is because they are mediocrities. This is not a bug, but a feature. Managerialism selects for this character type, selects for people who will not disorder the machine, who will not be sand in the gears of the operation. Anything to do with principle, or flair, or personality, or, if you like, conviction, having any beliefs, having anything other than a morally nihilistic uh, self-advancement behind yourself, 
having any substance whatsoever is inconvenient. It's, it simply complicates the issue. It means you're unreliable. So what we have is a model of faceless efficiency that is actually, as I've written elsewhere, post-human. The future that's presented by these global bureaucracies is one which deletes every meaningful aspect of the human dimension, from God through to settled traditional ways of living, such as the family, to every meaningful social bond. In fact, technocracy, in terms of its ambition, does in fact seek to replace everything with itself. It is uh, progress as degradation. It is not just the degradation of the human spirit, but it is the material degradation of your quality of life. One of the remarkable occurrences at the World Economic Forum was its, uh, its assault on, on aesthetics generally. It has produced this year, if you don't care for any of the news about it, have a look at this song. people run the world <laughs> they're so impressive what a bunch of freaks the only consolation about this offense against eye and ear is that the people who attended the world economic forum had to listen to it <laughs> they've been compelled to witness this grotesque spectacle but in terms of it being an insight into the kind of people that go there it kind of speaks to the spirit of Davos. I think nothing more effectively articulates the spirit of Davos than this caterwauling noise. Given that the World Economic Forum appears to be no more than a shop window for formerly influential people to sell themselves as a somewhat shop-sold product, it's no surprise then that Haunted Tree John Kerry made an appearance to tell us of the kind of person who still attends the World Economic Forum. John Kerry remarked in an unforgettable video for all the wrong reasons that the kind of people who come together, in his words, to save the world at the World Economic Forum are motivated by the fact that they've all been touched by aliens. If you don't believe me, then do have a look at the following clip. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. Just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. Much is made of the neoconservative war faction and the fact that they were initially Trotskyites. Um, if you go back far enough, most people were, were, were Trotskyites in, uh, who get into politics. They, in fact, people who get into politics are typically, it's on some level, weirdos. So I think we know that uh, it, it, it's, it's really not fair to criticise them for having an abnormal obsession with political doctrines. Uh, communism is basically a, a huge circle of uh, of backstabbers. It's, it's an endless purity spiral 
divided by shades of interpretation. So in as much as it's a training ground for, shall we say, the ongoing assassination of Caesar that is modern political economy, it isn't a remarkable development to come from a group of arguing commies in a cafe. Besides which, several of the original neoconservatives did in fact oppose the Vietnam War and, and weren't associated with it at all. Of the four initial names, only one of them survives to this day as the kind of the author of the neoconservative war faction, and that would be Irving Crystal, William Crystal's dad. William Crystal continues to spread his doctrine of democracy and superior values today, along with people like Robert Kagan, uh, Victoria Newland, who's his wife, uh, the ever-sane Donald Rumsfeld, who is un likely to be kept awake at night by nightmares featuring world peace. <laughs> and this is a this is a the neoconservative doctrine has been inspired by. An idea that the liberal democratic tradition is the apex of history, that, that you cannot go beyond what Fukuyama called in his book, The End of History, Democracy Plus VCRs. Unfortunately for Fukuyama, he has been somewhat mischaracterized. He isn't as stupid as that. He isn't as stupid as his critics say he is. He, I don't think he is a credible Hegelian. I don't think his ideas stand up philosophically. But then again, I don't have much time for that kind of talk either. It, and it deserves to be mentioned that Irving Crystal himself disavowed his son William's simplified version of his own political thesis. So he should be mentioned somewhat honourably for distancing himself from a rather crude interpretation of what was a somewhat more refined system of ideas about how to go about the business of promoting the values of the West. What this has reduced to in the modern age is the idea, well, the idea of liberal intervention. The neoconservatives themselves um, have presented this phrasing. Robert Kagan has presented this phrasing himself as an alternative to the term neoconservative. Neoconservative mouthpiece Max Boot, whose presence, uh, omnipresence, if you like, in the media is inexplicable from the point of view of talent, has argued that the neoconservative label is now toxic, and so he preferred to be called a liberal interventionist. Now, what happens when disasters like this take place, that you're held responsible for your, the awful consequences of your misguided ideas? Simply rebrand them, make them sound nice, and then everyone will go along happily. Liberal intervention was a term favoured by Tony Blair to talk about his military adventures as well, in Sierra Leone and in Iraq. Because the idea encapsulates very much some of the core principles of the neoconservative movement. We are the people who will decide what is best in the world. We are what is best in the world, and we will do what we want with the world. If we, if we designate you as a terrorist, if we demonize you sufficiently in the eyes of the world, then we can destroy your country and plunder it and ignore your sovereignty and then call it justice. Uh, it is a, a far worse crime than the initial Roman taunt of they make a desert and call it peace. At least the desert is peaceful. What's left in the wake of neoconservative action is anarchy. Libya, which was one of the most successful countries, I would say, in the world, never mind in Africa, is now the kind of place where you can have someone executed for $40, you can buy people for less than this, and you can see people being killed uh, extrajudicially in car parks. It is an horrific place that has been torn apart by the kind of factualism that Gaddafi simply didn't tolerate. Uh, meanwhile, his 
society enjoyed 96% literacy. Women went around without veils. It was a very, very prosperous place. He was turning the desert green in places through, uh, through hydration and irrigation projects. I think that his society was advanced to the degree that it offended the West because he'd done this without the debt-based development loans, which ensnare so many African countries into an inescapable spiral uh, of usurious indenture. It is curious that so much is made of the grievances over slavery when the economic model of the West is to do just that to the so-called free nations of Africa. Uh, this is an outrage, of course, uh, and it also helps to explain why so many countries so abundant in resources, so desperately poor to this day. What's broadly known as neoliberalism is not neoconservatism. Neoliberalism is a, an, a series of economic measures, and neoliberalism, like neoconservatism, is simply a portmanteau term for a system of ideas that would be seen as objectionable by anyone with an ounce of common sense. Neoliberalism presents itself usually as a model of rationalised economic reform. Again, the term rationalised is advised because it sounds like science, and you, if you disagree with it, it implies that you are irrational. What neoliberalism amounts to is the deregulation of markets, the removal of any kind of protective measures within a society that might provide for you to have a decent standard of living, a decent wage, that might provide for investment funds that guarantee the provision of public services. These, these deregulations that neoliberalism demands amount to asset stripping. Neoliberalism is a nice way of plundering countries and calling it progress. Neoconservatism, on the other hand, has very little to do directly with economics. It is a foreign policy stance which says that the West is superior, not only morally, but ha has achieved the end of history, or is rather the pinnacle of human development, that there is no other system that will ever be superior or can ever match that of elections plus consumerism. That is basically the liberal idea, with a capital L, that underpins the neoconservative self-justification. Given that if you understand that these people genuinely do advance the idea that their ideas and their system is the pinnacle of human moral and political achievement, this is what gives them the justification to destroy countries that deviate from this model. That is the project of neoconservatism. The idea that the liberal idea is inviolable and that it is somehow the acme of human development is itself comprehensively undermined by the kind of technocratic managers that run the West. It is, it is arguable, and it's an argument that I favour myself, that liberalism has in fact come to an end. If you would like a technical point of view to undermine the argument for neoconservatism, aside from the smoking ruins made of former nations that they've left in piles of rubble around the world, then look at the end of liberalism for an argument. Patrick Deneen's book from the University of Chicago, Why Liberalism Failed, is an excellent testament to the fact that the liberal era is at an end. One of the reasons it's at an end, it was accelerated by COVID, of course, is that no one speaks of the free world anymore. Because the freedom of conscience, the freedom of expression, the freedom of movement, the freedom from coercion, many freedoms which we took to be indivisible from our experience of being alive in the West have simply vanished. They've, they've not been suspended. If they can be suspended as they were, they've gone. They're no longer fundamental. This has attracted very little attention in, in the mainstream media. And this is an issue which strikes at the heart of who we think we are. My contention, therefore, is that our democracies are no longer liberal with a big L. 
Big L liberalism relies upon the rights of the individual, the freedom from, as it were, intervention from the state and the sphere of the individual, so conscience, opinion, association, movement, belief. Furthermore, the individual rights to property ownership. These individual rights are no longer enshrined in practice in the West. It has lost its moral legitimacy. There was a, a Jewish thinker in Britain called Sir Isaiah Berlin, who was perhaps the most illustrious defender of the liberal tradition ever to have lived. Almost, I would say, superior in his ability to communicate, at least, than John Stuart Mill, who was the author of On Liberty. What Isaiah Berlin said was that the, the reason for the moral supremacy of the West was pluralism. Simply put, in the West, as against Soviet communism at the time, you had societies which, would, which prided themselves on their ability to tolerate different ideas, their capacity to entertain contradictory notions yet contained within the same society. This is no longer true of the West. What the West is now is a better marketed technocratic version of the one-dimensional society into which everything is collapsing. If you look very closely at some phenomena such as cancel culture, you can see that the real project isn't just the removal of a statue or the bodlerizing of a book or the destruction of anything that connects people to a history beyond the last TikTok video they saw. Cancel culture aims to cancel all of culture, not just some of it. That's its aim. That's not an accident. It's not a side effect. Everything that's meaningful about the human condition, not just what's contained in culture, but in human scale relations, is, an, is inimical to the technocratic model of an efficient managerial society informed by advancement in machinery and in computing. That's what technocratic managerialism is. It's simply the dreams of managers, as laid out in Joseph Burnham's 1941 book, The Managerial Revolution, altered by rapid advances in computing power. There was a French thinker, uh, forgive me for mentioning this, because it's always uh, problematic to talk about intellectuals, but Jacques Ellul deserves a mention because he wrote a book called La Technique, or The Technological Society, in which he mentioned some of the dangers of our increasing reliance upon this. Now, uh, again, you know, to speak of another Frenchman, Jean-Paul Sartre once uh, remarked in one of his books that the, the result of the working class being exposed to increasing levels of intrusive technology was that their very dreams would be dominated by machines. In fact, he wrote a passage in which he spoke about a housemaid, and he said even when she dreamed, she dreamed of the machine. The point is, is that the accelerating integration of human identity with technology is not augmenting our human experience. It is altering it. In fact, it's dissolving it into pixels, if you like. People are becoming a function of the technology they use rather than having it serve their own needs. This mirrors exactly what's happened with managerialism, which was invented initially as an instrument of mankind, but which has made mankind its own tool. That the technology that informs managerialism is a technology that is altering the human dimension and collapsing it into one dimension from many. This is the nightmare vision of the technocratic future. And it's one that's represented not just by large-scale bureaucracies such as the failing and happily failing World Economic Forum, but by the people who genuinely do run the world. People who have preferred to remain in the shadows until now. People like BlackRock and people like Vanguard. Now, hopefully, 
having moved into the light, it is very unlikely, in my view, that they will be able to survive this exposure because they have, like the neoconservatives, like many of the technocrats that rulers, they have rather haughtily dismissed the uh, matter of public opinion as an irrelevance. I don't think it will remain irrelevant for long. People are beginning to understand what these ideas mean when they come together, which shows the enormously hearty example of the Dutch farmers. Uh, last year, they didn't exist as a political force, but as a result of the World Economic Forum-inspired measure to close down thousands of their farms, destroying the world's second greatest exporter of food, and therefore destabilizing the world food market, as well as removing the livelihoods and land by force of much of the Dutch farming sector, because these people had human-scale relationships that still existed, because they had strong communities that exist outside the digital world, they managed to build very quickly a formidable political uh, and demonstration-fueled opposition movement, which has moved into second or even first place in Dutch politics. In several months' time, there will be an election in Holland, which they're expected to win. They're at least expected to win in a sense that they'll have a controlling interest in the new government. They may even come first. So there is hope for us all. These projects that these people have for us are not unstoppable. And the fact that they do produce instability does not work in their favour. The policies of the World Economic Forum's chief stakeholders probably explain their absence from the World Economic Forum's meeting because it would be profoundly embarrassing for them to turn up in a meeting that is ostensibly devoted to naming and shaping the future masters of the world. These so-called masters have made a terrible mess of the contemporary world, and it is perhaps for this reason that they're absent from their, from their showcase, because what they have to sell us isn't particularly appealing anymore. To be honest, the message of reality is breaking through the propaganda machine. It is an unwelcome message, but it is one whose unwelcome nature is necessary to the degree in which it's true in order to awaken people to the reality of this crisis as against the unreality of every other one, which has been used as an instrument to mould you to the will of your would-be masters. It certainly seems like the agenda is to deindustrialize, to to basically... It, it's a false plan. There will be no service economy when you have no funds to keep it going. So that's a fig newton of someone's imagination. What's the real plan? The problem with Russia, if we, if we ignore the dimension of dehumanization, if we ignore the simple characterization of Putin as Hitler, or Putler, as he's been cleverly known, it is enough, by the way, to be anathemized these days to simply refuse to agree to who is the current Hitler. I'm not saying that there might not be a current Hitler. I'm just saying that I don't think Putin is Hitler. And to say that is bad enough. I mean, there may be a mysterious Hitler lurking somewhere who out-Hitler's him. But I don't think Hitlerizing uh, current hate figures really helps us to explain the diplomatic picture. And the fact that we have to resort to these documentary-based, cheesy documentary-based characterizations of world affairs shows how disturbingly close our interpretation of world events is to some third-rate Netflix series. If we want to turn off the trash TV, and it is an endless stream, of Baudelaireized tropes, what we could do is turn back to the remarks of Secretary of State James Baker and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who did guarantee to the Russians that NATO would not move one inch eastwards. 
This was formally dismissed as a Russian conspiracy theory, but in recently declassified documents, it's been shown that conversations between uh, French leaders, the French leader, German leaders, the European leaders, Gorbachev and the American government, in fact, private communiques between members of NATO and minutes from diplomatic communiques, all demonstrate that at the same time that Maker did make these assurances to the Soviets, he was planning for the future absorption of 10 former Warsaw Pact states into NATO in a march eastwards that would bring them up close against Russia's borders. This is a bizarre situation to find yourself in if you are the Russians. The Russians also received assurances about military bases and military stations in East Germany, which again was instrumental to the agreement of Gorbachev to German reunification. The Soviets wouldn't have agreed to German reunification, uh, to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the peaceful transition of power to the West, had they not received these assurances that were then comprehensively overturned. This is not the only instance of this unfortunate circumstance. It is also to be remembered that the Soviets surrendered power peacefully. There could have been an enormous bloodbath on a massive scale. There could have been a vicious attempt to oppose the relinquishing of power. But there wasn't. This was an extremely controversial move in the Soviet Union at the time. But nonetheless, it was undertaken in good faith, and it was a gesture of goodwill. It's my contention that the Russians at the time did believe that a new order could be founded that was a cooperative and collaborative one with the rest, with the West, in which the Russians found a new position in the world. Unfortunately, their assurances were never made in good faith. The assurances made under George Herbert Walker Bush were simply not sincere. The Russians found this out much sooner than we did. These communiques have only come out the last year or so, I think. However, they have been debunked in, in the Western media as mere conspiracy theories. So the theme of the humiliation of the Russians through negotiations that were undertaken in bad faith, the Russians were told lies in, in short. Where else were they told lies? They were told lies about the expansion of NATO. If NATO was making plans to expand eastward. The Russians were told it would never expand an inch eastward. This was then called a conspiracy theory and Russian propaganda yet the diplomatic communiques and the press records tell a different story. In addition to this, over the current war, which for the Russians began in 2014 following the cessation of parts of the Donbass region by a rebel group establishing itself as Novorossiya, or New Russia, the Russians entered this war in 2015 and ended it. They encircled the a large force of the Ukrainian army in the infamous devouts of a kotler or kettle, an encirclement manoeuvre, which effectively ended the Ukraine's hopes of any meaningful military operations. Following this, uh, an agreement was found at a first meeting in, I think, 2014, 2015. Sorry, the first Minsk agreement took place in 2015. The second in 2017, where the first was had failed to be implemented. After the failure to implement the second Minsk agreement, Another round of negotiations was undertaken, again, with, between Germany, France, Ukraine, and Russia. In a video which is remarkable to see to this day, and has only emerged in the last month, President Zelensky can be seen laughing in Putin's face when he reads out a list of non-implemented conditions for the Minsk agreement. Putin's contention is that France and Germany, who acted as guarantors to these agreements, were compelled by having signed them 
to ensuring Ukraine's compliance with this 10-point peace plan, none of which they observed. That was Putin's grievance with the Minsk agreements, saying that if we could return to them and implement them, we could end the war. This, this is a repeated overture from the Russians that they made in 2015, 2017, and again in 2019. The last time they did it, Zelensky sat there and laughed in Putin's face. He did this not just because he is a professional entertainer and, um, well, a comedian of some repute, but also because he secretly knew that the negotiations were meaningless. In a remarkable admission, former Ukrainian President Poroshenko said last June, that the Minsk agreements were undertaken simply to allow Ukraine to rearm. No one takes much notice of Poroshenko these days, so it was with tremendous shock that people received the remarks of Angela Merkel, who said in November that that was true, that the Minsk agreements were simply undertaken for the West to buy time to rearm Ukraine, whose army was devastated. By 2021, they had done so and created perhaps the strongest land army in Europe with an immensely well-fortified and well-armoured and well-trained organisation that bore no resemblance to the one that the Russians had defeated in 2015. This was the reason for the Minsk agreements. The Russians' contention, therefore, that they have been humiliated and lied to by the pretense at diplomatic procedures in the West is true. The Russians have been left with no recourse. They aren't taken seriously when they come with peace proposals. They're characterised as aggressors when they go in to ostensibly defend their own Russian-speaking population as a result of the profound diplomatic failures of the West that was never interested in peace and that proposed negotiations only as preparations for a far bloodier war on a much greater scale than that already taking place. What are we looking at in terms of timeline here? This is going to play out over 2023. The escalation policy that we now see that we see this week playing out of the drama of the supply of yet more armour and tanks to Ukraine, the escalation policy that is so loudly resounding around the Western media did not begin with this war, but it began in 2015, when NATO, the US and the West decided to rearm Ukraine on a massive scale in order to escalate the war beyond any meaningful dimension that it had formerly undertaken. The war was a small-scale regional conflict at that time. Its dimensions now include the possibility of escalation to a nuclear exchange, which in my opinion is the only meaningful way in which NATO can stop the Russian campaign. Even if the Ukrainians do receive three or four hundred modern tanks, I don't think it will make any meaningful difference. The Ukrainians have reportedly put 18,000 troops on the Belarusian border, wherewith the Russians are reputed to have somewhere in the region of 100,000. Russia is not running out of men. Russia has the industrial supply chains and resources to continue the manufacture and logistical chains necessary for large-scale warfare. It is arguable that we do not in the West. Tony Blair himself, notable peacenik uh, and anti-war campaigner Tony Blair, last November remarked that the West, for the first time in modern history, no longer possesses the resources or the industrial base to sustain itself. It's my contention that the West does not have the industrial base to sustain a large-scale campaign of warfare. And for this reason, you find the United States going to Israel and South Korea to retrieve the missiles that it sold them in the past. Sorry, the artillery shells that it sold them in the past, because it, can't, it doesn't have the capacity to replenish its own inventory 
rapidly enough to keep supplying Ukraine. Whilst I was researching, the Russian claim to have been lied to and humiliated by a diplomatic strategy of deception whilst preparing for war by the West, I discovered a, an article in a publication called War on the Rocks, which reframed the Afghan debacle as a sandbox for the coming war with China. It would appear, especially when we look back at Mike Pompeo's Three Lighthouses speech, that Russia is simply a staging post towards the big one, which is a war against China. As insane as that sounds, there is mounting evidence in articles and speeches from the war faction to suggest that this is the case, that the genuine project at hand is not the toppling of Russia, but that of China. This is the real prize on the table, apparently. Some people argue that the Russian collapse would be simply a staging post to better mount a campaign against China. Mike Pompeo gave a speech last year called the Three Lighthouses speech. It was a speech that you can take, if you are unfortunately interested in this kind of thing, you can see that it's a landmark in foreign affairs. It's the kind of thing that sets out strategic policy for a government in the coming years. And the three lighthouses to which he refers are, of course, Iran, Russia, and China. Pompeo's speech is a decidedly neoconservative manifesto for an escalation of overseas interventions rather than a retreat. It is a, an unapologetic call for an increase in military spending to dominate these countries before they become indomit indomitable. The fear for people like Mike Pompeo is that other nations might simply exist that aren't in his grip. This is the neoconservative dream to achieve global supremacy. The former think tank, which was the umbrella group for the neoconservatives in the United States, used to be called the Project for a New American Century. And it expressly avowed an anti-Chinese policy since its inception in the 90s. It's not a new idea in these circles that China must be challenged and China must be defeated. And I think it's for this reason that we see a renewed round of anti-Chinese articles in the press. Again, China isn't a paradise, and I'm, I'm glad I don't live there. But I've known people who have. It, it isn't, by the same token, uh, a uniform hellhole either. Uh, in fact, a lot of Chinese technology, especially in the major cities, would be simply embarrassing to be seen by a resident of London, for example, because against the obvious and seemingly unarrestable decline of much of Europe, many of the Chinese cities appear to be something out of some kind of science fiction film. I mean, I, I don't want to live in a science fiction film. I think it's nightmarish. But nonetheless, it, it is rather sobering to see what they've been up to in terms of their development. Secondly, I'm not, I'm not convinced that the Chinese themselves are interested in full-scale um, global warfare because one of the problems cited by this article in War on the Rocks was that the Chinese, unfortunately for them, are pursuing a frustrating no-war policy. Um, this is very upsetting to the neoconservatives and they must be provoked out of this no-war policy. Because uh, what the neoconservatives find disturbing is the absence of uh, a bellicose posture from the Chinese, who they say much prefer to build trade networks and influence through prosperity. Now, I think that's a, that's a true and accurate picture of the Chinese engagement with the wider world. But from the neoconservative point of view, it's deeply unfortunate. And so something must be done to shift the Chinese into a more warlike stance in order to justify becoming a soul. I think this helps us to understand why moves made in the summer 
to antagonize the Chinese over Taiwan. Now, it might not be common knowledge amongst the listeners and viewers, but Taiwan's government actually claims dominance over the entirety of mainland China. It is a zero-sum game. Either the, the government in Beijing is the government of China and Taiwan, or the government of the tiny island of Taiwan is the legitimate government of the whole of China. This is never mentioned when Taiwan is mentioned in the news because Taiwan's the source of 98% of the world's semiconductors and no one can afford to upset them. But the actual fact of the matter is that both parties claim ownership of each other's territory. One of them is very, very big and the other one isn't. Furthermore, one of them is very, very close to China uh, and the United States uh, isn't. Uh, the Chinese have missiles, by the way, that, that, that most people would agree can sink the U.S. Navy if they get within several hundred miles of, of Taiwan. And that includes the, the carrier fleets as well. Um, it's to be remembered, of course, that the whole system of globalization, that the transmission of cheap goods across the world, including Chinese goods, which we increasingly rely on to console ourselves in our dissolving social nightmare existence, uh, we can't fuel our consumer addictions without cheap Chinese manufacturing. But this manufacturing and everybody else's, it's still guaranteed by the dominance of the US Navy. Most people overlook the fact that the United States Navy is effectively the military wing of globalization, without which global trade wouldn't simply function in the way that it does. It wouldn't be as efficient, cheap, and predictable. So the United States Navy is, in effect, uh, uh, subsidized by the United States taxpayer, guarantor for global trade. Uh, of course, if it happened to meet with any unfortunate circumstances, that global trade would probably have already halted somewhat, because I do not think the Chinese would continue to supply us with many of the precursor components that we need to build our weapon systems. Frank Wright, totally fascinating, as usual. God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us here on the Johnny Weston Show. It's been a pleasure as always, and I hope to see you again soon. God bless you and God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching. And may God bless you.